The Bain Free Radio Hour. Today on the podcast, we prepare for invasion with the contributors and editors of Little Green Men Attack and continue our serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All of that right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. This is David Afsharirod sitting in for Tony Daniel this week, who was kidnapped by little green men from outer space. But not to worry, after some brief deliberation, we have decided to pay the ransom they demanded, and we are assured that Tony will be back in time for next week's show. In the meantime, it's a pleasure for me to be here with you. Joining me today on the program are the contributors and editors of Little Green Men Attack. It's an all-new anthology of humor science fiction stories with an alien invasion theme. After that, we'll continue our audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. But first, the news. Faithful listeners to the podcast will have heard Tony's interview with DJ Butler about his new flintlock fantasy, Witchy Eye, which is out now in hardcover. The novel's unique setting was the inspiration behind this month's online contest. In Witchy Eye, the United States of America takes on a very different form as the setting of an epic fantasy tale. We love Butler's unique reimagining of American history, but we also want to hear yours. Give a character from American history an epic fantasy makeover for your chance to win. Would Ben Franklin be a powerful wizard capable of calling down lightning? Would Abe Lincoln be an axe-wielding giant? Give us your take in a short paragraph, roughly a hundred words or less, for a chance to win a signed copy of Witchy Eye. Sorry, Franklin and Lincoln are off the table. Send your entry to contest at Bain.com no later than March 20th, and please put March Contest in the subject field and remember to include your name. One entry per person, please. Winner will be selected by the Bain editorial staff, and the winning entry may be published as part of the announcement. And now let's listen to that interview. I was joined by the editors of Little Green Men Attack, Robin Wayne Bailey and Brian Thomas Schmidt, as well as contributors Sean and McGuire, Peter J. Wax, and James E. Gunn. Hey everybody, we are here today talking about a new science fiction anthology out from Bain Books. It is called Little Green Men Attack, and it is uh, all new short stories with a alien invasion, first contact kind of theme, but the thing they do all have in common, besides Little Green Men, is that they're all very, very funny. This is a uh, collection of science fiction humor, and uh, here to talk about the book with me today uh, are the editors, as well as a couple of the contributors. Uh, let's go ahead and introduce them. First off, we have uh, the co-editor of the book, Mr. Robin Wayne Bailey. He is the author of numerous novels, including the Ongoing Frost series, the Brothers of the Dragon trilogy, the Young Adult Fantasy trilogy Dragonkin, as well as Shadow Dance, Nightwatch, and the Fritz Leiber-inspired Swords Against the Shadowland. He's authored over 150 shorter works, many of which have been collected in Turn Left to Tomorrow, and his companion volume, The Fantasticon, Tales of Wonder. 
His novelette, The Children's Crusade, was a 2008 Nebula Award nominee, and he is a two-term president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and one of the founders, along with James Gunn, of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, uh, which now resides uh, in Seattle as part of Paul Allen's Science Fiction Museum and uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, I've talked to him in the past about uh, one of the Chicks and Chainmail anthologies, and I'm glad to have him back on the podcast. Uh, Robin, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Um, we've also got Robin's co-editor, Brian Thomas Schmidt, on the line today. He is an author and Hugo-nominated editor of adult and children's science fiction and fantasy novels and anthologies. His debut novel, The Worker Prince, received uh, honorable mention on Barnes & Noble's Year's Best Science Fiction releases of 2011 and was followed by two sequels. Uh, as an editor, his anthologies include uh, Galactic Game, Shattered Shields, Beyond the Sun, Ray Gun Chronicles, and uh, Space Battles, and of course, Little Green Men Attack. Uh, he's got a few coming up in the pipeline. Uh, the Monster Hunter Files, uh, co-edited uh, with Larry Correa, uh, is forthcoming from Bain. I bet we'll talk about that. And he's also got uh, a couple more anthologies coming up. Joe Ledger, Unstoppable. Unstoppable. Uh, Infinite Stars and uh, Predator If It Bleeds, which is a uh, tie-in short story anthology with the Predator series. Um, he's also an editor of um, longer works, novels, uh, including uh, Andy Weir's The Martian. Uh, Brian, uh, so good to talk to you again here on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. And uh, joining us, as I said, are some contributors to Little Green Men Attack. Uh, first off, we've got Shannon McGuire. She is the New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen books, all of which were published within the last five years, which may explain why some people think she does not actually sleep. Uh, her work's been translated into several languages and resulted in her receiving a record five Hugo Award nominations on the 2013 ballot. Uh, Shannon, thanks so much for coming to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Thanks for having me. Also here today is James E. Gunn. He has had a career divided between writing and teaching, typified by his service as president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and as president of the Science Fiction Research Association, as well as having been presented the Grand Master Award, excuse me, the Grand Master Award of CEFWA and the Pilgrim Award of SFRA. He's now Emeritus Professor of English at the University of Kansas and continues to write. He's published more than 100 short stories and has written or edited 42 books, including The Immortals, The Listeners, The Dreamers, Alternate Worlds, The Illustrated History of Science Fiction, The Road to Science Fiction, and most recently Transcendental and its sequel, Transgalactic. Uh, Jim Gunn, thanks for being on the show today. Oh, it's a pleasure. And last but not least, we've got Peter J. Wax. He is a best-selling cross-genre writer and formerly managing editor of Wordfire Press. He started his writing career in the gaming industry uh, when he created and wrote the storyline for the international best-selling game Cyberpunk CCG. He moved on from there to work on ABC's Alias as a game consultant and has since also written tie-ins for Veronica Mars, G.I. Joe, and Heroes Reborn. Today he has over 100 stories published and has been nominated and balloted for multiple awards. Uh, Peter, thanks for uh, coming on the show with us. Really happy to get the opportunity and also thank you for having me. All right. Well, I want to talk about everyone's uh, stories because I should say um, Robin and Brian also are uh, writers and they've written stories for Little Green Men Attack. They're not they're not just the editor uh, editors. 
Uh, but first I want to talk about the anthology sort of as a whole. Um, and Robin, let me turn to you. I think uh, this idea originated with you and you were telling us before we started recording a little bit about how it came about. And so if you would just uh, tell us about where this idea for Little Green Men Attack came from and also maybe uh, what were the marching orders when you were soliciting stories? What did you say you were looking for? <clears throat> okay. Um, I have been a contributor a frequent contributor to Esther Friesner's Chicks and Chainmail series. And for some time, I thought we really needed a science fiction equivalent of that. I was a big fan growing up of the humorous science fiction of writers like Robert Sheckley and Frederick Brown and William Tan, to whom I, these three writers are mentioned in my introduction as being my big three for science fiction when I was growing up. Others think about Clark Heinlein Asimov, but I loved the humorous and the satirical work of these particular writers. And we didn't see much of that kind of science fiction anymore. Now, Esther writes a lot of uh, very humorous work, and I've written a lot of humorous work also. And she and I are very good friends. And I approached her on several occasions about doing some sort of a humorous uh, science fiction version of Chicks and Chainmail. She was busy when we finally were starting to get this seriously off the ground and not able to uh, take part in the editing of it. And she suggested that she'd love to write a story for it and urged me to, to pitch it myself. But Brian is living very close by, and uh, Brian's a good friend and was having considerable success as an editor also. So I approached him about co-editing it with me. And we made the pitch. We put together the pitch together and uh, took it to Tony Weisskopf. And Tony was uh, enthusiastic. And the book became a reality. When we pitched it to the writers, when we sent out the uh, invitations to the writers, we had a core group of people that we wanted to take part and a core group of newcomers um, that we wanted to invite also. And it was a real mix. We've got a great mix of award-winning, very established, well-known science fiction writers and some brilliant newcomers. There's a story in here. I will mention her by name. Danzel Cherry's story knocked me off my socks uh, when I read it. I bought it um, pretty much instantly. Uh, and also Steve Silver. I had known Steven Silver as a fan for quite a while and was... I had seen he had edited a couple of anthologies for Daw Books, but I'd never seen any fiction by him. And his story for Little Green Men is also just a knockout piece. So I'm really happy with the mix of writers that we've got. All we told them when we when we made the invitations is that we wanted the story to in, to be funny and to in some way involve alien contact. Um and we left it pretty wide open from there. And we got an, a, an astonishingly funny mix of stories. I'm very happy with the way this anthology turned out. And I'd like to think that Robert Sheckley and Frederick Brown would also be very happy with the stories in this anthology. I really had them in mind um, from the beginning to the very end of this anthology. I think they're yeah. unfortunately not as well remembered as they deserve to be. Yeah, I think um, I, I've i read all three um, gentlemen, but I love Frederick Brown. Frederick Brown is one of my favorite um, 
science fiction writers of all time, probably. And so it was when I saw your uh, dedication and then when you mentioned him, uh, along with Sheckley and Tin, I was, I was pleased. Um, you also mentioned, uh, Dan Sell Cherry, who I, I know well from the Texas convention circuit. And I actually got a chance to hear her read her story from Little Green Men Attack, uh, at uh, FinCon or ArmadilloCon or something. So I w- I'd been looking forward to this for a while since she had uh, given us a preview of that. I, kn- I, I loved her stories and I knew the rest were going to be great as well. Um, talking about this history of, uh, science fiction humor, um, you know, you mentioned we don't see it as much as we maybe once did, but there has been a long tradition of that um, in uh, science fiction, maybe more so than in other genres. Um, certainly there are humorous horror movies and, and fiction, too. Um, but uh, I guess I was just wanted to ask everybody, open it up a little bit. We mentioned Brown and Sheckley and Tin. If there were other um, science fiction humorists or just humorists in general, maybe they don't write in the field, that have been favorites and an inspiration uh, when approaching humorous science fiction. Well, you got Jim Gunn and Robert Silverberg, who are both <laughs> in the book, for example. Esther Friesner, I mean, Seanan, of course, writes really, really humorous stuff. I mean, I don't know. we got a lot of angry and weird people in science fiction. I think we need to laugh, <laughs> you know? Another... <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Shannon. Oh, one one kind of kind interesting of... aspect of the humor business was that uh, back in 1948, L. Sprague de Camp, who was really sort of a humorless person, wrote an article about humor in science fiction for a collection that was published under the name of Worlds of Worlds Beyond. And at that time, it was considered pretty difficult to to write humorously about the science fiction field, but it expanded after that, and I think became far more uh, amenable to to comedy. Well, I was remembering particularly Henry Cutner, and he had an entire series of stories about a character named Gallagher, who was a brilliant inventor, but he could only invent when he was absolutely blasted drunk. Totally and then he couldn't remember today. what. Then he couldn't remember what he had done. So that was the funny part about it. He had to figure it out <laughs> afterwards what he had done. But uh, there were there were actually a lot of writers who I'm surprised that uh, the camp would have thought that writing humorous SF was difficult in those uh, <laughs> 30s and 40s because there's, there's quite a few examples of it. And I think many of the magazines usually carried one or two humorous stories, it seemed. But we'd fallen away from that tradition, I think. Well, as a matter of fact, I think think the uh, publication of John Campbell's Unknown unleashed a lot of comic talents with people who could could write far more humorously about fantasy than they could about science fiction. But then Fred Brown came along and... And, and others who uh, were able to to do the humor more more uh, easily. You know, it's funny. I Shut found it. a lot of my humor in uh, in science fiction in the '90s with stuff like uh, Craig Shaw Gardner and the Cineverse Cycle, mm-hmm. or Terry Pratchett uh, who did Strata. I actually discovered Discworld after his science fiction piece uh, called Strata. Uh, and of course, you know, Job, a comedy of justice, going back to Heinlein and, and stuff like that. 
We can't forget Hitchhiker and Adams, of course, and we can't. Yeah, I would wait for someone to say that. So one of the best pieces going right now for me has always has been the whole series that uh, that Gail Carriger has been doing with her her um, kind of her vampires steampunk series. Is there's been more than one series now, and I just really enjoy the humor in those. Um, and then there's Gordon Dixon and Paul Anderson dealing with the bears in space and all their their crazy stories. I mean, there's there's tons of examples. Yeah, um, Seanan, did you have some that you, I think you're the only one who hasn't maybe weighed in yet, um, that you wanted to bring up? I grew up almost entirely on humorous science fiction. I mean, I wanted to, I went into stand-up comedy because I wanted to be Alan Dean Foster. I, I wanted to write the Robert Aspirin books. You know, that was the whole goal, was to do these things that are funny and yet somehow move and change people. I don't feel that we've moved away from the tradition as much as any tradition in science fiction kind of goes in waves. People get burnt out on a topic. You know, you see a bunch of master humorists working at the top of their field, which is what we really had uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, when Esther Freezer was publishing her Magic or Nothing series, her Harpy High, you know, beautiful stuff. Alan Dean Foster was burning it up. Robert Aspirin, Pratchett was just starting to really become a force. Then you see a whole bunch of imitators, and the imitators are generally pretty terrible. Uh, and because they're not writing honestly, they're trying to write as someone else. I was pretty mm-hmm. terrible when I was just imitating them. And, and then it goes away. It's not cool for a little while because everyone remembers the rush of imitators more than they remember the real deal. You know, it's what happened to vampire stories, and it's what happened to first contact stories, and it's what happened to starship stories. And then we come back. I, I honestly feel like we are at the cusp of a renaissance of science fiction humor. Little Green Men is a part of that, and you're just seeing it happening organically all over the field. In, 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 the, in the world of novels, you know, the world of novels is, all, is almost entirely separate sometimes from the world of short fiction. Um, and I know there's a lot of very funny work out there at Novel Link. Of course, Terry Pratchett, of course. Uh, the aspirin books are an, are an interesting example of what I'm getting at right now. Aspirin's myth books are very, very funny, but they're fantasy. The science fiction novels, on the other hand, Cold Cash War and The Bug Wars, are not. Those are straightforward, very straightforward, serious SF. Um, but his Fool's I, Company I novels were absolutely humorous. Of SF. I'm sorry, Shannon? His Fool's Company series, which ran for like seven books, was absolutely heavy-duty science fiction humor in space. It was following a military attachment of misfits and losers as they proved that they were better at being military than the people who maybe hadn't been rejected. It was basically... You were right. I had forgotten those. And the Miss books actually turned out to be a science fiction fantasy crossover world. You know, the dimensional hoppers, once you get to Diva, he really did not play by genre rules. Mm. Um, well, let's uh, let's talk about some of the stories uh, in the book uh, you, that you all wrote. Um, maybe let's uh, start with Peter. Um, we mentioned that you've uh, worked in video game or in gaming, excuse me. And uh, your story is called The Gameaholic's Guide to Life, Love and Ruling the World. Um, and the main character in it is a gameaholic and, uh, this, he goes to gameaholics anonymous and the slogan they have is life is not a game. And then it turns out maybe that 
they need to rethink their slogan. Uh, if you could maybe just, I, I like to just say tease people so that they'll go out and buy this book or and buy multiple copies of it, um, about your story and, and without giving too much, any, anything away, um, you know, just kind of let us know what it's about and anything else pertinent you think can think of. Absolutely. Uh, I actually, I co-authored the story, uh, with my friend Josh Vogt, who also works in the game industry. Uh, he's done a novelization for Paizo and a bunch of game design and stuff. Uh, when we, when we kind of bandied back and forth about it, we decided that we wanted something that gamers could enjoy, but that non-gamers could enjoy kind of looking into the culture from the outside. Uh, so we came up with this concept that Earth is just a beta test, basically, for a giant, massive multiplayer online for the little green men that are attacking. They're, they're the players that are controlling each and every one of us. Uh, and so <laughs> we, we kind of tried to riff off of every traditional gamer joke out there, but also bring some new light and humor to the society and culture, both of alien invasion and, and of gaming. Yeah. And I think it worked well. I mean, I, I'm confession. I'm not much of a gamer or I'm not at all, but I did enjoy it. And I think, so I think you pulled off uh, that aspect of it certainly. And um, I thought this was an interesting one too. Um, You know, like you said, uh, the part of the mandate was, you know, some sort of alien contact. And, uh, you have that here, but it's very different than what we, what we see in a lot of stories in the book, which were great. I'm not downplaying them, but, um, these aliens don't land in a spaceship and get out and meet us. That's sort of, it's very different. I just wondered if there was any story behind how you guys decided to come up with that as opposed to having, um, a more traditional first contact narrative that's sort of like the first contact happened a few million years ago, I guess, or right. So since it's all a simulation. <laughs> yeah, we, we did actually kind of, we were talking about uh, the invasion of ideas and how, you know, memetics and memes are, are kind of culturally taken over. And we, we wanted to play with the idea that contact and an invasion does not have to be physical. It can be digital. It can be mental. Uh, it can just be capturing ideas and that can be enough. Robin or Brian, do you want to weigh in? I mean, since uh, you guys obviously inc- decided to include the story, um, do you have any commentary on uh, the Gameaholics guide that you wanted to toss out there? I will confess, Peter. Um, when I saw the first the story for the first time, I didn't understand it. I have no background in gaming at all, really, to speak of. And I didn't understand some of the acronyms and some of the terminology and everything. I discussed that with Brian, and I think Brian asked you to perhaps clarify some of the acronyms or something. But when, and and maybe for a light rewrite, if I recall correctly. And when that came back, I got the story. I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, and I think it's a, because it's, it doesn't involve aliens. It's not a first contact story in the usual sense. I really enjoy it for that, for that reason. It's different from, from some of the, from most of the other stories that do involve first contact or alien or actual alien invasion. So it's a standout well, piece not- in that regard. I'm not particularly a gamer either, but I've probably done more of it at least in recent times than Robin. And I, my, my attitude towards it was what I like is I want to make sure that all the stories are accessible to everybody. I want to make sure that you could, people can 
get something out of every story. And so I, you know, I like the different aspect of it as well. But that I think we did ask for a little light rewrite just to make sure it was as accessible as it could be. But Peter, Peter and, and Josh turned things around pretty quick, and they're pretty good at that. So it really was a it really was a, a minor tweak at best. Yeah. Um, well, let's um, talk about uh, March of the Little Green Men, uh, Mr. James Gunn. Um, you, this is a, this is a more traditional aliens land story, um, although it, that's about all that is traditional about it is that the aliens do land in a spaceship and get out, and they are little and green. Um, and I like this one. I feel like we talked about it some this kind of theme before on a podcast with somebody, but um, it's sort of the uh, it plays with a lot of the tropes uh, of aliens uh, landing and what it would be like. Um, the main character is sort of this low level instead of you know higher up the president or whatever he's this low level uh, bureaucrat type character and um, he keeps wanting the aliens to like help us like you've come down and you're supposed to give us something and <laughs> it doesn't really work out um, and I just you know wanted to talk about that I guess um, is where that idea developed from so no I don't write uh, much. Uh, uh... <laughs> Original fiction these days, or rather, most of my time is taken out of things. But I was a, attracted to this particular project, uh, mostly because of the final sentence in the story, which I won't reveal what it is. But it did uh, suggest that this, there are certain questions about um, uh, alien contact that somehow never get answered. And I, uh, I thought this was an interesting answer that I had not heard before. And in order to lead up to that answer, I wanted also to, uh, to deal with other kind of expectations that occurred to me that, uh, the, 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 one of the major sources of humor is the, ex the disappointed expectation, which leads to something else. And I wanted to, uh, to deal as any science fiction writer does, either seriously or comically, with the kind of, uh, of of answers that have been provided by authors before. In fact, there's a whole tradition of science fiction, which I call the dialogue between science fiction writers on different topics, with one responding to another in the way that uh, I responded to Frederick Pohl's uh, classic story, The Midas Plague, by writing a story which also appeared in Galaxy, called uh, Little Orphan Android, and uh, I've, in a sense, I was trying to do the same thing, to continue this dialogue with the kind of expectations that we have, uh, in many cases instigated by previous science fiction stories, of what, uh, what we expect from this kind of encounter, and the kind of uh, realization that works far better through a a uh, a minor functionary that it does through a top official as he as they they tries to interpret the the needs of his uh, of his particular position trying to get some answers so i hope it works for people well i i loved it and i loved uh, i i also won't spoil it but that uh, last line that you mentioned is uh, worth the price of admission, if you will, and I and I like that you brought up that um, dialogue. That may, I, that's an idea. I um, one of the things I've always loved about science fiction. I think I got it from reading something you wrote. 
um, is, and we've talked about this, the history of humor in science fiction and the back and forth between uh, authors. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Um, Brian and Robin, again, do you, do you have anything you wanted to say about March of the Little Green Men? Well, I, you know, Jim has been kind of a mentor to both of us in various ways. We're, of course, local near to him, so we go and participate in activities down at KU with him on a regular basis. So uh, I was just privileged to actually edit a news story by Jim Gunn. That was pretty exciting. I mean, we, we were, he, he, he turned that sucker around I think, in like a week or something after we asked him. It was the fastest, the first story in. And so we were all excited. The first like, story in and the first story we agreed to buy. Yeah, well, we got we got a story, and then you know we got to see what a uh, pretty legendary writer writes, and and he's he's been a good friend to us too. So we're all the way around pleased with it. Well, and uh, as just a reader, I am pleased to have seen uh, a new James Gunn story uh, in in this book. Um, Brian, I mentioned you wrote a story with Alex uh, Schwartzman, uh, which is in here. Um, and that guy certainly knows humorous, uh, science fiction and fantasy. Uh, for those that don't know, he edits, um, a series called, uh, Unidentified Funny Objects that I think they're working on this. He's working on the sixth one now, which are humorous fantasy and science fiction. So, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about, uh, First Million Contacts, and it, it also deals with expectations in a way from, uh, the media about what an alien, uh, first contact might be like that, Again, don't go quite as we thought. So, um, yeah, just go ahead and talk, tell us a little bit about it. Our story basically opens with an FBI agent in Walmart watching a, a strange uh, undulating green bean walk up and French kiss one of the cashiers. And then she starts investigating what's going on when the, when things, crazy encounters with these beans go on all over Kansas City and all over the world. Uh, basically, yeah, we were playing with the idea that aliens, uh, much of our expectations about, uh, first contact are inspired by popular cultural notions, popular cultural, you know, movies or, or books or, or whatever. And, and we thought, what if the aliens were inspired by seeing our popular culture about how to make contact with us? And that was basically the whole premise of the story. And I don't want to give too much away, but basically, you know, there, there's a weird explanation for the behavior of the aliens that comes toward the end. It, it makes sense, but uh, it's, it takes a while for it out of context to make sense to anybody, and that's kind of what the mystery of the story is about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, worked well. What was it like um, collaborating with uh, Alex on this? Um, if you want to talk about that a little bit, maybe. Um, was this something you cooked up together, or um, I don't know. How did that work? Well, I had. The, I think I had... We, we combined two ideas into one. I, I kind of took the lead on it because I really wanted the laugh out loud humor style that we didn't have as much of, uh, in some of the stories we had gotten at that point. I mean, they're all funny in their own way, but there's different styles of humor represented in this book. And I really kind of want, I, I, I myself like more of the, 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 you know, chuckle and gut, gut busting laugh kind of thing as you, as you go. So I kind of wanted more of that, and that's uh, Alex's humor is a little more subtle. So we did kind of uh, adjust. Uh, that was the biggest struggle: was finding the balance where we both agreed it was funny and the right kind of humor, and finding a mutual voice together. Uh, for the most part, I mean, the, but it was a really good experience overall. I think we we've been friends for a while and and, and followed each other's work. So uh, you know, pretty much. Um, Traded off scenes. We divided it up in an outline, traded off scenes, and then went back and polished each other. Okay. 
Well, I think it, it was certainly it had me laughing when I was reading it. So I think you mission accomplished uh, on that. Um, okay. Let's, uh, Sean and, uh, you have been waiting patiently. Let's talk about school colors. Um, so this is uh, about a cheerleading team that, um, makes first contact and, the, but they're a, a unique cheerleading team. They're not, um, your run of the mill, I guess, I don't, you know, not that there is standard issue cheerleaders, but these are very different cheerleaders. And, um, I was wondering if this felt very lived in and forgive me if I should have read these before, but is this a world that you, uh, characters you've written before? Uh, the, the fighting, what are they fighting pumpkins? Isn't that their name? I spend a lot of time with the fighting pumpkins. I, I, I love cheerleaders. I think that there is very little funnier than a cheerleader used properly. Uh, because like a lot of the archetypes that, that we're dealing with, you know, in modern culture, people have all these ideas about cheerleaders. So, you know, they're all blonde and they're all booty and they're all bitchy and they're all these things. And, and that's not true. You, you meet cheerleaders and they are, they're people, they're athletes, uh, and they are weird athletes. They're athletes whose entire sport involves jumping up and down. Um, so, you know, you, you, they have a great sense of humor about themselves as a general rule. You'll meet the occasional stuck up cheerleader, but, most of the ones I've known, if you dropped an actual alien invasion on the field during a game, would just kind of shrug and roll with it because it's no stranger than the football players. We, Brian, help me remember, uh, Esther Friesner wrote a cheerleader story for Galactic Games. Isn't that right? Am I remembering that right? It's the only reason Shannon didn't write one is because I already had Esther yep. claimed it first. Esther got uh, the cheerleaders uh, first, so I had to do roller derby. Okay. So the one thing I liked about this too is, and I wonder if you, if this just happened, you know, as you were writing or if this was a conscious choice, but I liked, um, there's a little bit of an unorthodox choice. So this is, I, I don't think I'm spelling too much. Aliens come down and they, um, they are a cheerleading team and they, uh, for pretty high stakes, they challenge the fighting pumpkins to a, to a competition. But the thing I liked about this is that you have, um, well, one of the things is that you have the narrator, the main character is the one cheerleader who's not able to cheer. She's injured. And I, I don't know, was that just something that just, ha- I know sometimes when you write that just happens, but, or was that a conscious choice somehow, uh, when you were putting this together? Yeah, that was, that was a conscious choice because one thing I will say about sports stories, and I love how Galactic Games, which has already been mentioned, handled this. Um, but on the whole, just sports stories. It's actually kind of boring to read about someone else actively doing a sport, even Hmm. if you love that sport, uh, because, you know, think about playing football. I caught the ball. I ran. I tried not to get hit. I ran some more. Or or cheerleading. I kicked my leg. I jumped. I kicked my leg again. It's not not exciting, and there's not a lot of humor unless people are falling down. Uh, But having someone watching other people do a sport opens an entire avenue of commentary on what they're doing that they would not necessarily have the bandwidth as they're bouncing or running or trying not to get tackled uh, to come up with on their own. It opens yeah, a broader range of emotion. And yeah. Shannon handled that really well. She, her, her, her outside narrator is able to comment and appreciate the flaws and the accomplishment of both teams uh, in a way that some one of the active participants, one of the active cheerleaders, probably would not have been able to do. 
And just real quickly, if you would, um, tell us a little bit about the Fighting Pumpkins, um, and then we will leave it at that. We don't want to spoil the story too much, obviously. But um, The Fighting Pumpkins are completely cross-genre. Their first appearance was for an Apex Magazine story uh, where they actually fended off an alien invasion by summoning Bloody Mary out of the mirror, and they haven't gotten any less surreal since then. Um, <laughs> they are functionally the defenders of... Western California, it is set up in the world where they appear, which intentionally does not require a lot of knowledge to read, um, that usually it's high school cheerleading teams that protect people from monsters and the like, because we do have all these assumptions about cheerleaders. We just kind of ignore them because they're bouncy girls in short skirts. They're not something to worry about. Uh, and so the Fighting Pumpkins take their cheering very seriously and also take eliminating monsters that would otherwise endanger the human race very seriously uh, and do this without letting their GPA slip because if your GPA goes below a 3.5, you can't cheer in most states in the U.S. Um, and I love them. They are absolutely ridiculous. Uh, one of the first lessons I learned about comedy was that the more seriously the people, the comic things are happening to take it, the funnier it can potentially become. So they take everything very seriously because it is life and death for them. And we just get to kind of sit back at the safer move of not being in the story and laugh at the fact that a bunch of cheerleaders in electric orange and green uniforms are now fighting Cthulhu. Um, and I, I love them. I love my fighting pumpkins. They're redonkulous <laughs> and they make very little sense if looked at too hard. But mostly I don't kill them and so it works out okay. <laughs> and how many have you written? How many have you done now, Shannon? Uh, oh, gosh. Um, uh, Dying With Her Cheer Pants On was the first. Then we had uh, Gimme a Z, which was in Zombie-esque. I think this is the fifth published one. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, cool. I only tend to trot them out when somebody asks for a story that the fighting pumpkins would fit because I don't want to exhaust them. As long as sure. they're still funny to me, they'll still be funny to you. Yeah, good idea. Um, all right, well, and let's uh, finish off with the story that finishes the anthology, or closes out the anthology, I should say, and that's Robin Wayne Bailey's uh, The Fine Art of Politics. And um, this is uh, Aliens Come Down, and uh, they uh, there's a... You know, you talk about humor and how humor can maybe tell truths um in a way uh, put it in a funny package and there's a line that i that sums this story up i think the aliens are coming down and they um they give us some technology which i won't spoil i'll let robin tell you guys if you want to but uh there's a line that says humans in their desire for security and free stuff will become complicit in their own subjugation which that cracked me up um probably because it's very true um and uh, Robin, maybe just just tell us a little bit about this story. What um, what is going on here? And also, I want you to talk about the use of puns because you've got some really good ones in here. Uh, so, anyways, yeah, just tell us a little bit about the fine art of politics. Um, well, um, the, I wrote the story last. I knew that all we had chosen. I think all of the stories that we were going to buy, and Brian had mentioned. With his story, he'd wanted to plug in any holes that he thought might pop up. And I waited till all the stories came in so that I could see, I thought, what holes I wanted to plug up. And 
when I got to that point, we're kind of pro- approaching deadline, um, and I realized, you know, I'm so happy with most of these stories. There's no really hold I want to plug up, but a lot of commentary. And we were going through the election cycle, of course, and I just decided I really wanted to have fun with that. So I knew my story was going to be um, – I knew the title right off, the, the, um, the Fine Art of Politics. I started with – even before I had a, another line for the, sto- for the rest of the story, it was a springboard. And I began just taking advantage of everything I saw that was ridiculous and funny and even pathetic about uh, the, the primary campaign at that time. So you had, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders offering free college and free this and free that. And so that's where the line comes from that you mentioned. Uh, that's the origin of that line. You know, uh, you know, all you need is free stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but they're not, the, just, the aliens aren't offering free college though. They're offering something. They're not offering quite, free college. Quite, they're, <laughs> they're offering a piece of technology that gives you I'll give it away. That gives you all the free junk food you can handle, uh, junk food yeah. and sex toys, the things people yeah. desire most. Um, um, and uh, and people are lining up around the block to get them. You know, uh, um, the politicians, of course. You mentioned Jim's story, where the uh, handling the aliens and Jim's story was kicked down to a lower functionary. The same thing basically happens in my story. Uh, the politicians and the upper brass all skip out, you know, head off to the golf courses um, and leave all this, this alien contact in the hands of a mere major. Um, you know, the, the generals, the colonels, the politicians, the congressmen, they all vanish like Cinderella on daylight savings time, leaving it all in his lap. Uh, and it's up to him to solve the problems in this story. Uh, and uh, you mentioned the puns. I love good puns. I just, I, I, uh, Shannon mentioned aspirin. Aspirin and I were good friends. I wrote uh, for the Thieves World series with him. Uh, we would sit around and play guitar and pun till the break of dawn at every convention we were at. Mm-hmm. Um, Gordy Dixon, the same way, uh, sitting around with him. It was a pun fest. And, uh, I've always enjoyed that kind of humor uh, when it's done well, and and my story ends on a horrible pun. Uh, in fact, I think Brian wanted me to edit it originally, uh, but I, I insisted <laughs> on keeping that. Um, um, yeah, well, you know, well, I have to edit you. I have to edit you at some point. You did. I had to edit you. You never forget now that I I bought your first professional story, so you'll uh, always <laughs> owe me. But that sale, for sure. And if you forget it, I'll remind you. Ooh. <laughs> Rob, I still think you should. I think I still think you should have put the line in there about Happy Meals uh, taking on a whole new meaning, but you know, sex toys and fast food. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> my one my one concern about my story um is Jody Lynn Jody Lynn and I's story. Um Jody was one of the latest stories to come in and uh there's a, a, a small similarity um uh, between her story and mine that I won't spell out. 
uh, totally accidental on both our parts. But we decided that uh, we could go with that. Um, but, but there are two stories in there. Well, no, I, I don't want to give it away. Uh, Jody, Lynn's, Jody wrote her story completely separate from mine. Um, the, the similarities is totally accidental. Take my word for it. <laughs> well, actually, since since you brought up uh, since you brought up uh, Jody Lynn Nye's story, um, just w- right before we wrap up here in a second, I know um, uh, you know there obviously the uh, the three folks we've got on today, plus you guys, th- that would not make a whole book. We've got quite a few other stories in here. Uh, we mentioned Dancel Cherry's story. Um, Anyways, Brian or or uh, Robin, uh, you want to just uh, mention some of the other stories that are in here to again, like kind of tease people so they will go out and buy multiple copies of this thing. Well, we've got a we've got a really fun story by Ken Scholes uh, about a uh, a folk singer whose background turns out to be a bit surprising, uh, and uh, and then there's a there's a story about a, a alien landlord that uh, Martin Shoemaker wrote for us. Um, we have reprinted a classic called Hannibal, Hannibal's Elephant for, from uh, Robert Silverberg. Um, uh, we've got a, uh, a, uh, a, a a fan club from out, out of the stars of Little Women that come down in Christine Catherine Rush's story. Um, let's see, what else, Robin? Go ahead. Tell, tell about some others. Um, I am particularly enamored of Stephen Silver's story. Um, it, uh, it's called Big White Men Attack. And I, if you talk too much about it, you give too much of it away. But as I had mentioned early, early, I think, maybe before you were recording even, I had known Stephen as a fan and as the editor of two Daw Books anthologies sometime back. Um, I had not seen Stephen writing before, and this story just had me laughing almost from the beginning to the very last line. Uh, so Stephen Silver's story is a real standout piece. Also, Selena Rosen has a story in there. The title is eluding me, and I meant to have the book right in front of me. Green, green, I've, got it, let me... I've got it right here, The Green Green Men of Foam by yeah. Selena Rosen. And I love that story a lot. However, you know, we... We had a number of stories come in that all amounted to a little green man walks into a bar. Um, and uh, we actually had to put our foot down finally and, and uh, reject a bunch of those. Uh, if we had one recurring theme um, among the stories that we did not take, it was the idea that a little alien walks into a bar. We have two of them in the anthology. Um, Selena's is one, essentially one, um, and it, it rocks. It, it, it just rocks as a story. Um, the we, all, we, also story. Have a, we also have a coffee house story, uh, a cup, cup, a cup of burning love, aliens, and, and, and coffee. Um, and our, we open with a really uh, funny story by Mike Resnick that it's basically alien, little green men take their hands <laughs> Sort of. The aliens are seeking vengeance on the people slandering them in pulp magazines. So that's kind of a fun story. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think that should uh, certainly uh, 
entice people to go out and check out Little Green Men Attack. I know we've kind of already done this, but I thought I like to close on a little like round robin question of if you could, if you would, everyone just name uh, somebody, somebody, something humorous, either it can be even a movie or a TV series, but science fiction humor that you would, uh, besides Little Green Men Attack, that you would reckon um, people checking out that, that, that you've always enjoyed. Um, like, Brian, you want to start with you and we'll just kind of go around like that. Well, I, I highly recommend the the uh, the Gail Carriger's uh, series. Uh, there's there's a bunch of different books, and I'm trying to think of the name of the old. There's two different series, but there's steampunk uh, uh, series about monsters, and they're very hilarious. Series. Uh, I think Prudence is one of the characters, and maybe the name of one of the series. But anyway, uh, those I always always enjoy coming back to. Uh, Robin, what about you? Um, Brian is mentioning new people, and I really like to introduce people or reintroduce people to the older work um, so that that stuff isn't forgotten, so that those writers aren't forgotten. I would send you back to Martians Go Home um, and to those Gallagher stories that I mentioned by uh, Henry Kuttner. Uh, Paizo Press recently released the Gallagher stories in a single volume, I think the title of that volume is Robots Have No Tales. Um, so go look at some of the older humorists as well. You know, forget them. Uh, rediscover their work. Frederick Brown, Robert Sheckley, William Tan, all great writers. Uh, Jim Gunn, what about you? Uh, any Anyone you want to uh, encourage people to check out? Uh, well, Al Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt, they did a series of marvelous novels about, uh, uh, characters being tossed into fantasy worlds and having to learn how to survive in it. And, uh, and also I think there's a great tradition of, of satire in science fiction, which always turns out to have a humorous aspect to it. Or often does at least, uh, and I would recommend uh, Fred Pohl and Cyril Carvelis work in that respect. Uh, their novels and Fred short stories are are really great too. So uh, those are the ones that I would ask people to to not forget. Yeah, um, uh, Peter, what about you? But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to recommend something old or something new. I'm going to recommend someone else on on this podcast. I'm really curious about the pumpkin stories. I want to go find the rest of those peer leader stories and read them. That <laughs> yeah. sounds absolutely awesome. So, so everybody loves a cheerleader, right? Yeah. So that yeah, that's what I'm going into the ring is that I'm going to be hunting okay. them down. Uh, okay, Ed Shannon, uh, what about you? What do you think? Uh, you said movies were okay, so check out yeah, Slither by the other James Gunn. Uh, it is uh, yeah. <laughs> one of the most fantastic pieces of semi-independent science fiction horror I've seen in a long, long time. And the comedic pacing that you'll find in Slither, uh, just the character beats that take what should be a situation that is so ridiculous it can't be frightening and turn it into something where you can see yourself. The humor there actually makes a ridiculous situation believable. Um, and it's beautifully, beautifully done. I cannot recommend Slither highly enough. What yeah. is that movie? Great. 
Slither by James Gunn. He's currently directing oh, the right. Guardians of the Galaxy franchise for Marvel, uh, which is mm-hmm. wonderful for him, but kind of sad for me because it means I'm not going to get Slither 2 for a long, long time. <laughs> I'll say uh, there was uh, Hank Davis, who uh, works for Bain, uh, edited a uh, military science fiction. It was, I think, all or mostly reprints called um, Future Wars and Other Punchlines, which was pretty funny. Um we didn't end up doing a podcast on, it, I think, because uh, sadly most of the contributors have passed away. But the, uh, not all of them, but uh, <laughs> too many of them. Frederick Brown, people like that. But it was it was really good. And of course, we mentioned Chicks and Chainmail, um, which those are great. And then the other thing I would I'd say is um, John Dies at the End by David Wong. It's really horror, um, but but it's hilarious. Yeah. So, uh, and Coscarelli did a movie based on it, which was pretty good too, but the book is, is great. So those would be my recommendations. Uh, have you read the sequel yeah. yet? This book is full of spiders. I seriously, yeah, do you don't touch it? I think yes, that I actually yeah, takes it, it into the realm of science fiction. You know, you're probably right. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so that would be, uh, that would be my recommendations a- along with what everyone else has said. I'm echoing, um, the, like I said, again, the Frederick Brown, especially, um, all right, well, that should do it for us. Uh, I want to thank everybody for being here. Sean and McGuire, Peter J. Wax, James E. Gunn, Robin Wayne, excuse me, Robin Wayne Bailey and Brian Thomas Schmidt. Uh, the book is little green men attack. It is out now in trade paperback. Uh, online, uh, ebooks, and of course, uh, the good old corner bookstore will have it as well. And if they don't, you should ask them for it. Uh, so just want to thank everybody and, uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. And Shannon and Peter, thanks for, and Jim, thanks for giving us great stories for the book. Oh, thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's most fun I've had, right? <laughs> In most Let's of that do year, it again. It was bad, so thank you. Now we continue with our complete serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Here through the magic of modern technology is your usual host, Tony Daniel, to bring us up to speed. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend, the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Coursera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. One light minute from Cleveland's world. The box of files had been in storage in the attic of the manor and brotherhood. On top of it were piled discarded items, trash, which had been thrown out over the centuries, if not a millennium. The lid of the box, it had originally been a case of ammunition, was stenciled mining records, but Adele had glanced inside. 
Many of the chips were of the standard type used for log recordings by Pantellerian and Kostroman ships some centuries in the past. If Adele had had time, she would have copied the files to her data unit the way she had done similar files in the basement of Navy House. She had located the box the day that Daniel blew the breach in the Cephasis, so she had only had time to ask Corey to carry it aboard before the Kaisha shifted to the outskirts of Hablinger. It nagged Adele that she had absconded with stored documents, though even she could scarcely describe the box as having been filed. No matter. She had worse things on her conscience. Adele had sorted the chips immediately and found that most of them were indeed logs of ships from three to five hundred years back. She hadn't had time to go through the chips properly until now, however. Pursuit of the Madison merchant made them a first priority for Adele and the spacers with the correct expertise, a group which now included Able Spacer Hale. Adele was so lost in her pursuit of knowledge that she didn't hear the announcement that they were about to extract into sidereal space. The transition felt as though hot sand were being rubbed on the inside of her skin. Her mouth opened in a silent gasp. She blinked, then regretted it, because the imaginary sand was under her eyelids also. Discomfort was nothing new, and the effects of extraction went away promptly. One corner of Adele's display echoed the command screen. It showed a planet in the fuzzy detail of high magnification. An orbiting ship would not have appeared at the present scale, but Adele's quick check of sensor data showed no sign of one. The merchant had either landed on Cleveland's world or it wasn't here at all. Adele went back to the logs. The Kaisha had extracted a light minute out from the planet so that Daniel and his officers could observe activity on and around it unseen. They didn't need Adele's skills to accomplish that. A few of the logs were from ships which had never made voyages to the Ribbon Stars. Adele couldn't imagine why they had been placed in a box in a Brotherhood attic. Most had more local significance, but they didn't involve HH1509270 or any other world which might be the right one under a different name or no name at all. Occasionally, Adele had asked Corey to check recorded course data to see if an unidentified landfall could have been the one the Kaisha was looking for. None of them had been. Until this one. Captain, Adele said on the command channel. She sent the file to everyone in the command group in the form of an icon slowly pulsing between red and magenta. I have something, I believe. Roger, said Daniel at last. What is it, Monday? The delay before Daniel responded had been brief, but was still longer than Adele unconsciously expected. He and the others are searching for Sorley's ship, she realized. Of course it would take them a moment to transfer their attention to a centuries-old logbook. It's an entry from the log of the Kai Red Din, a hydriote ship from the 6th century post-hiatus, Adele said. She couldn't put the date more precisely, because the log used a notation specific to Hydra, and her files didn't include a cross-index to that system. When next she lifted from Cinnabar, she would have the necessary information. The Kai Red Din landed where I think was here, Adele continued though they refer to it as number 614 on Antigonus's list. Their reaction mass tank had frozen and split, so they needed to repair the tank and replenish it with water. The hydriotes were excellent spacers, whether they were acting as transport agents, as they mostly did now, or as pirates, which they had been over much of their history. 
Hydriotes were clannish and secretive in either role. Antigonus's list was obviously a registry of potential landing sites, but this was the first time Adele had seen a reference to it. Rather than interrupt Adele, Vessie set a text at the bottom of every display on the command channel. Madison Merchant located on surface at standard grid FF4430-8259. Anyone who wanted to switch from Adele's presentation could highlight the icon Vessi posted with a text and go to imagery of the freighter on a small lake. The entry reads, Adele said. Part of her mind thought it was silly to tell people what they could read for themselves, but experience had taught her that she could not make things too simple for people asking her help in finding information. Refitting required 61 hours. Before landing, we welded caps over the high drive outputs, and on the surface we ran the thrusters for ten minutes every two hours. Because the drives were underwater, we could not check the seal. When we had lifted to orbit, we found that three high drives had been compromised because the plugs had been partially dislodged in the atmosphere, and there was enough buildup on the thruster nozzles to prevent the leaves from sphinctering properly. Adele cleared her throat, then realized that she needed to say, over so that the others would know that she had finished. Sir, said Corey, if the algae is waterborne, then we don't have a problem, do we? We've got plenty of water, and landing on dry ground is a piece of cake for us, over. We're at three quarters on reaction mass, said Vessie from one of the flat plate displays. We were topped off in Brotherhood Harbor, but we weren't able to take on any at Hablinger because the water was so turbid. Well, we could have, but I didn't think we needed to, over. I think our tanks are quite adequate to land and to get us back to Corsera, Daniel said, and that's all I propose to do. I'm just as glad not to have to run the evaporators to filter mud out of our internal water. And I'm even happier not to chance running the local algae through our system. So that's not a problem. And thanks to Officer Mundy, he nodded, probably toward Adele's image inset on his display, rather than toward the person herself on the other side of a double curtain of holographic light. We have a way to release Cleveland without risking an attack with a plasma cannon while the merchant was on the ground, which I'm afraid was the best plan I had come up with until I learned how virulent this algae is. I... Six. I could take out their gun if we just make one pass at a hundred feet, Sun said, stepping on Daniel's transmission. Even if there's somebody standing in the open hatch, this pipsqueak gun won't so much as give them a sunburn when I jam their four inches traversing gear, which I can do over. Adele heard a note of desperation in his voice. The gunner had been expecting to show off his skill. Now it sounded as though he would not get a chance after all. Son, if I thought that were necessary, Daniel said, I'd order you to do it and have every confidence in your success. I prefer to negotiate in as non-threatening a fashion as I can, though, so we'll simply land nearby and go down to talk to Captain Sorley in a polite fashion, and... Adele locked the sending units of the others on the net. Wochins and all the males were volunteering. Daniel, of course, was saying that he was the proper person to negotiate. Captain Leary, Adele said in the enforced silence, the negotiator has to be non-threatening. I will be the negotiator. I will take Tovera. Because Tovera would follow Adele to the Madison merchant unless Adele shot her first. In case there should be difficulty. I've met Sorley and his crew. They're not men who will look beyond the fact that two small women have come to treat with them, over. She released the other's commo and leaned back. 
The babble subsided quickly when the others came to the paired realizations that Adele was right and that Adele was not going to be moved from her position. I'll accompany Lady Monday and her secretary in my second-class uniform, Fessy said unexpectedly. There should be a commissioned officer present, and I have a lifetime of experience in not being threatening. Over. There was a pause. Daniel laughed, breaking it. Adele smiled, though there was more than humor in the expression. Aloud, she said, Yes, I think Lieutenant Vesey would make a welcome addition to the negotiating team. All right, Daniel said after a brief hesitation. Adele realized she had failed to close her transmission again. Then the next order of business is to plot our landing. Six out. That was another entry in our complete serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for this week's edition of the Bane Free Radio Hour. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. I also want to thank Robin Wayne Bailey, Brian Thomas Schmidt, James E. Gunn, Sean and McGuire, and Peter J. Wax for talking with me today. And I want to thank those little grain aliens for abducting Tony Daniel, which allowed me to host the podcast this week. Join us next week here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>